0: Yeah, Jim, this is a wild, contentious slice of Oregon
1: lore. A little something different than we usually get into here on the podcast. But before we get there, Jim, let's explain why we're taking this trip back in Oregon history.
0: Well, Jamie, I think I can do that, or at least offer a little bit of a teaser here with one word, and that's monolith. Oh, the
1: monolith, (laughs) if you've been keeping track of... The news uh, lately, you may have seen the story about the mysterious monolith that has appeared in the Utah desert and all of the drama and speculation that followed that. It's been an interesting way to sort of look at art and nature and, you know, vandalism. Is this monolith OK? Is it not? Where did it come from? Is it aliens or some rogue artist? But it all harkens back to an event that happened in Oregon about 30 years ago that brought up all of these same kinds of questions and arguments.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jamie, I'm looking back at a story you wrote. Oh geez. All the way back here in October of 2019, which seems by the way, like, uh, (laughs) quite some time ago. Um, and the headline kind of says it all art or vandalism, massive Oregon desert designs created a stir in the 1990s. Uh, I'm looking at photos of these big designs, Jamie, and they are kind of wild. But before we get into what they are, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown of the the history here that we're actually going to break down here on the podcast today?
1: Okay, so it, it started back in the summer of 1990 when some... Uh, pilots with the Idaho Air National Guard were flying over the Alvord Desert, which is in the far southeastern corner of Oregon. We've talked about it on some previous episodes. It's a, a sort of a, a desert playa that's empty, kind of this dry seasonal lake bed. Uh, it's a really beautiful spot. People like to go driving or walking or just to visit it in general. But as the pilots flew over it back in 1990, they found these mysterious symbols that were carved into the desert. These sort of geographic symmetrical symbols that some people later recognized as the Hindu symbol called the Sri Yantra. And they took some photos of these symbols and broadcast them to the world. And all of a sudden, people are trying to figure out where do these things come from? It's like crop circles, right? Mysterious symbols appear seemingly out of nowhere in this remote location Was it aliens? Was it um, some kind of strange natural force? Nobody knew. And of course, everybody speculated. Just like with the monolith in Utah, it created headlines across the world for people trying to figure out what's the deal with these symbols out in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, in the desert. So after a little while, this artist came forward, this man named Bill Witherspoon. He emerged as the man behind the symbol. And what he said is that he, along with three friends and his 10-year-old son, created this massive Sri Yantra symbol using a pair of binoculars, sticks, wires, and about 12 miles of string. He said in about 10 days in the sweltering heat of summer, the group completed the project, made the symbol for seemingly no other reason other than art, art, and then just left, not telling anyone about mm-hmm. it and just waiting for someone to discover it as they did. This, of course, set off, as you may expect, just a firestorm of controversy uh, in, in ways that you may have expected with, you know, people saying, hey, you shouldn't be desecrating this natural area. Um, and with people saying this is the work of the devil, uh, some local pastors there in southeast Oregon were really concerned that they were conjuring up some sort of demons or doing witchcraft. Environmentalists were saying, hey, this is um, a desecration of a beautiful place. And the federal government, the Bureau of Land Management, ended up citing Witherspoon with willful defacement of public lands and issued him a $100 fine, a whopping $100 (laughs) fine. Um, saying that with the area he carved his symbol was a place called Mickey Basin, which is a site that was under consideration for protection as a desert wilderness. And not only did he desecrate it, but the people that came to look at it did undue damage on the land beyond that. So basically, it seemed like as, as pure as his intentions may have been, by the end, everybody hated Bill Witherspoon. Everybody seemed to find some reason to dislike what he
0: did out there. And Jamie, that history is fascinating. What words don't convey though is the size of this display. This display is massive. I'm looking at photos and it looks like based on these archived shots that, you know, the Oregonian photographer, whomever took these file photos that we have, can barely fit the entire thing in the frame from either a helicopter or a plane, you know, we didn't have, you know, consumer drones at that point to take photos like these. Um, and we'll drop the photos of course, in the show notes or a link to them in the show notes, but this is absolutely massive. And, and, you know, regardless of how you think about it, an impressive display.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It it was captivating. You don't see this kind of thing. Every day it's not like, you know, carving some symbols into the beach while you're there and the till the tide comes in. I mean, these things are are huge. The fact that he needed 12 miles of string tells you something. That's not, you know, a couple hundred yards of string. That's 12 miles of string. That shows
0: you the enormity of the undertaking that he he did with with his friends and this group of people. Yeah, my gosh, I wonder, number one, how you even get 12 miles of string. Uh, <laughs> are you just buying, like going to every hardware store, you know, between home in the desert and, and picking up string? Are you buying just some humongous, you know, balls of twine, basically? Uh, <laughs> you know, I surely don't know. I bet that question has been raised before to Mr. Bill Witherspoon. But this massive, massive display. Uh Okay, Bill gets himself a fine hundred bucks, don't do this. Uh, this was a bad thing. But yet, Jamie, the saga isn't over. No, because it was so popular, so many people liked it.
1: Bill sees it as an opportunity to continue this popular project. So the following summer, he pays his fine, he's, he's done. Uh, he came out with another huge symbol, twice the size of the previous one that had both Hindu and Native American origins. And he did it by getting some uh, private landowners in that area in the same desert to agree to allow him to carve it. So this time it's not illegal, but he's again carving up this same kind of desert. And, you know, while it's it's not quite the same as desecrating uh, public land, it has that same kind of uh, a feeling of, of enraging these environmentalists and enraging people who really think like, hey, this is like a... a A special place you shouldn't be carving symbols into it but again people continued to be captivated by it and connecting this to the the monolith of the recent days you know it's it's interesting because the monolith is not the same it's not this big grand scale art form but it's still somehow captivating to see something that is so different something that is human created in what is otherwise this serene natural landscape you're so used to seeing those swoops and those those curves and those uh, images of nature but to see something like the monolith so square and so uh you know machine like out there in the middle of the of the, of the the utah desert it's it's wild jim it's strange it's unusual and that's really what captivates people's attention to see something so unusual
0: in a place that it doesn't seem like it belongs at all yeah whether it's you know these swirling designs in southeastern Oregon desert public or private or this pop-up metal monolith you know just a, a vertical uh piece of metal you know standing in the desert kind of in that southeastern Utah kind of uh desert rock and sandish looking landscape uh that's the kind of thing that makes people Simply ask the question: How did it get there? Where did it come from? And in the Utah case, which we'll talk about a little later in the show, uh, it sounds like we have a reasonably decent idea here as we record in very early December. And in the southeastern Oregon case, you know, generally speaking, uh, we do know where these big, uh, big displays came from, but they still, you know, decades later, capture our attention. is just being. Strictly bizarre. Um, so, Jamie, how'd things shake out with design number two on private land, not public, uh, but contentious nonetheless?
1: You know, it, it was uh, again, it brought about a lot of angry comments. I have a few quotes here from people at the time that he, he carved the second one, uh, and they're really telling of where people are at. There's at least one Portlander who claimed defense on multiple fronts. In a letter to the Oregonian, they wrote, As a Buddhist and as an environmentalist, I feel insulted by Bill Witherspoon's so-called mystical carving up of the Alvord Desert. It's nothing more than an egotistical imposition on nature. There were also several local churches who became extremely concerned. So an evangelical Christian congregation in Burns, Oregon, prayed for, quote, confusion in the camp of the enemy, as Witherspoon worked, and a reverend in a nearby Baptist church in Hines, Oregon, said he was worried about the, quote, negative spiritual influence of the project. Another pastor uh, said that the symbol was a way of summoning dark spirits and said, anytime you deal with spirits, you're going to be dealing with demonism and demonic activity. But most people seem to be concerned on an ecological level, on an environmental level. So Andy Kerr of the Oregon Natural Resources Council told the Oregonian at the time, quote, he can call it art, but it's desecration of nature. The Alvord Desert is a canvas of perfection that cannot be improved, and we would much prefer he go and play in the cornfields of the Midwest, where he was from. So that, I think, really hits at what some of the biggest concerns are for this kind of stuff. And it shows sort of what the same concerns are for the monolith. A lot of people who were against the monolith being there were against people showing up and going to see it and therefore trampling on what was a very sensitive desert ecosystem there in Utah. And that same thing happened in Oregon when these symbols showed up. A lot of people started driving on and trampling um, and in some cases spreading waste in an area that is pretty sensitive. So for all of the artistic majesty that witherspoon wanted to make for his second symbol it also continued to enrage a lot of people
0: a lot of people and jamie it's worth noting if you travel down to the alverd desert today symbol number one faded from the playa you know the results of snow melt rain you know you name it it's a story it's a photo it's gone display number two any evidence that this existed at this point I can't see any. I mean,
1: just like you said, the, the nature of the Alvar Desert being um, sort of that dry lake bed, it gets wet during the wet season, um, and then it kind of gets muddy and then dries into cracks. So I mean, anything you carve into that is not going to stay long term. It's similar to carving stuff in the beach, right? The tide comes in, the sand gets wet, and it washes away. So a similar effect happens there in the desert, so you're not going to see anything really long term. I've, you know, scoured Google Maps trying to see if there's any kind of evidence of any of these symbols, and I can't find anything. So it seems like, like you said, Jim, these are long gone.
0: But Jamie, the story does not end there. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Witherspoon amazingly, amazingly, uh, conjured up a third idea. Um, and this one, uh, quite different than, uh, a carving. Lodgepole Pines Standing Tall in the Desert. Yeah,
1: this is the third summer in a row that Bill Witherspoon is out there making symbols because he's really hit upon something, he thinks. So in 1992, he went back to the Alvord Ranch where he created the second symbol and made a third design, a giant symmetrical star made out of 1,111 lodgepole pine logs standing on end. He said, quote, "This this is a big action. Influence spreads literally out to the edges of the universe. So this was, again, I think maybe the swan song of Bill Witherspoon's Alver Desert Action. Um, this symbol didn't quite conjure the same kind of excitement, it seems, as the other two. I think by this point, people were kind of tired of Alver Desert symbols. And he kind of faded from the public and public's imagination after this. He had kind of always wanted to do another big symbol, maybe in the middle of a city. Um, the idea was to maybe frazzle city dwellers into some sort of tranquility, but it doesn't seem like he ever did it. Uh, he eventually just retired to Iowa, where actually he launched a new career um, called Sky Factory, um, which is a company that creates photographic illusions of nature and skies used in hospitals, workplaces, senior living facilities to provide a sense of calm for people in those otherwise kind of static environments. So he went on to do some really great stuff, uh, but this three-year stint of him making symbols in the desert was just sort of a strange and interesting part of our Oregon history.
0: I think you summed it up well there, Jamie. A strange and interesting part of our history here in Oregon. Uh, Surely uh, the monolith down in Utah, you know, that has been recently uprooted, reminds us of that history. And Jamie, I want to talk a little bit more about whether this is art, whether this is vandalism, what it all means. But first, let's take a short break. All right, folks, we are back talking about the 1990s saga of large designs made in the Alvard Desert a story we were reminded of after reading about the strange monolith found and recently removed in the Utah desert. So, Jamie, all of this kind of begs the question, and it's the question that you led your story with uh, back in October of 2019. Art or vandalism? Unpack that a little bit. I mean, I think it's Mirrors the emotions that we
1: go through when we see these things. I don't know about you, Jim. I, when I saw that monolith, I, my first thought was cool. (laughs) This is, this is neat. (laughs) You know, you think of 2001, a space odyssey and like, whoa. Um, you're kind of shocked into that, that feeling of this is a strange thing to see in this beautiful natural place. Um, that's my first reaction. My second reaction is, wow, that should not be there. That is something that is so out of place. You know, that out-of-placeness is something that both makes it seem attractive and interesting and also makes it seem uh, wrong at the
0: same time. And similarly with, you know, a design etched into the Elver Desert, a treasure here in this state, uh, something that you could immediately think, wow, that's kind of neat. But also it's not the way the desert naturally is, probably isn't the way it should be and causes undoubtedly a a problem. And, uh, you know, you look at either of these examples, you know, uh, on public land causes a stir, lots of attention, gets a lot of visitors. It's not just the act of putting this installation or this design uh, in the desert. It's also the effects of that installation or design being installed there.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. I think, you know, you can look at the issues with it, practically speaking. So with both of these cases in Utah and in Oregon, you have people being drawn to a remote place where, you know, they may be put into a dangerous situation they're not prepared for. They may be, um, you know, leaving behind waste and trash in an otherwise pretty delicate ecosystem you know, these things draw visitors and spectators, and both of them did. And that was, I think, the reason why, at least in Utah, they refused to say exactly where this monolith was at first, because they didn't want people to come trash it. And people found out, and of course they did, and trash was left behind. So there's that practical reason to be against this. I think there's also this sort of this philosophical argument as well. You know, a lot of us, I think right now, we tend to view nature as this Unblemished, perfect, beautiful place where we can go and get away from society and get away from, you know, humanity and immerse ourselves into the beauty of nature. And to see it carved up with symbols or to see statues or art or monoliths placed there in the middle of nature, there's something that's kind of perverse about that. It's almost like it feels like it's ruining the experience. And I can understand sort of the romantic attraction of Art in nature and the allure of that. Um, but it seems like as a society, we're kind of moving away from this, you know, nature is our plaything to be done with as we please into this place where we're finding more of a respect and an honoring of nature and a desire to allow it to just be as it is in its natural form. I mean, you wouldn't do something to crater lake, right? You don't, you don't carve a big symbol into wizard island on crater lake. People would freak out about that. And just because these places are remote desert areas doesn't mean that there's not going to be people who still have that reverence for them. So it kind of feels a little disrespectful to people who want to enjoy these spaces as they are to go and put your personal stamp on it. That's how I feel anyway. I think that that's what a lot of people feel when they see these things.
0: I mean, it's not all that different on a much you know larger scale than carving your name into a tree, right? It's your way of exactly. saying, I was here uh you know jr was here 2020 you know uh made my mark at the end of the day i i don't think anyone looks at that and thinks wow really glad you know jim made his mark there in 2020 uh super glad that uh <laughs> you know he chose to carve his initials there you know, it, it kind of harkens back to me, Jamie, as, uh, you know, to fit this into our outdoors and travel podcast, it's a little something different for us. But to me, it comes back to Leave No Trace Principles, something we've talked about on the show here before. You know, you've described the Alvord Desert uh, kind of in, in beautiful language in the past here uh, on the podcast, but it's a fragile, beautiful, kind of extreme environment, and To go in there and make your mark for the sake of making your mark, not the choice I would make, and not a choice I would advocate for, uh, for other folks either.
1: No, I mean, I think you're right, Jim. The the leave no trace principle is really, really on display here. When that monolith was uprooted, as you alluded to, by a group of four men uh, recently, what they yelled as they took it away was, leave no trace. So this wasn't taken, uh, you know, as, you know, an art heist of someone who wanted to keep the monolith for themselves, it was taken away by people who apparently allegedly, you know, really cared about the ecosystem there and the principles of not leaving anything behind, you know, they, they, I I assume, see the monolith as trash, as garbage, as something that is human created left behind in a natural area. You know, not so different than leaving behind, you know, your styrofoam cooler when you're done with it or doing anything else that, that you know, leaving behind a tent or an old cook stove or a broken down car. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Th- these are human created objects left behind in a natural landscape where they don't belong. So I, I, again, t- to me, Jim, it just it feels disrespectful. And as much and as cool as I thought the monolith was at first, as much as it wowed me, it It did it felt disrespectful that someone would just leave it there um that it would it would be sort of an eyesore um for many people as beautiful as it is on what's otherwise a really beautiful natural landscape
0: so moral of the story here jamie uh if you have let's say an unwanted monolith uh don't go <laughs> placing it in the alvar desert uh don't go placing it in the Utah desert. Or in any other natural area. Um, I'm unsure of any monolith uh, removal or disposal options, but presumably uh, you could come up with something better. Um, all that is in jest, of course, but uh, I would tend to agree with, with all you said there, Jamie. We shouldn't be making a mark uh, like that in nature, is my two cents. Uh, call me a curmudgeon, call me old-fashioned, uh, call <laughs> me what you want to call me. You know, I-, I could even go for a compromise here.
1: Go set up your monolith, take pictures of it, take it back and, and leave. You know, there's something about you You can bring your, your, you know, objects into nature if you want to get some cool pictures of it because it looks cool. It looked really different, but leaving it there, I think maybe that's where it crosses a line is, is leaving it behind and just, I don't know, just leaving it in that natural setting. It just that that's where it, to me, it feels like there's a philosophical line that is crossed right there.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a large object, difficult to remove. Going to cause a lot of visitation, most likely because it is interesting. It captures your attention. It makes you. It begs the question: What happened here? Uh, How did it get here? Uh, I want to go see it for myself. Yeah, at the end of the day, Jim, it's it's selfish. You know,
1: people are drawn to this area not because it's beautiful, um, not to enjoy the nature, but because some human created object has drawn them there. And if that's the reason you're going, you may not be thinking about the best way to protect and honor this natural area. And that
0: tends to be what ends up happening, sadly. Well, Jamie, I think we can leave it at that. So folks, until next time, you can watch our videos on the Oregonians YouTube channel. Follow us on Instagram at Peak Northwest. And view all of our travel and outdoors coverage on Oregonlive.com/travel. Please leave us a rating or review if you enjoyed the show, and if you want to support this podcast and our local journalism, please consider a subscription to Oregon Live. You can find details of course at Oregonlive.com/podsupport. This episode of the show was produced by me, Jim Ryan, alongside Jamie Hale and Elliot News. Stay safe and happy travels, everyone. Until next time, we leave you with
1: this 10 Seconds of Zen.